few months, several times, and I really believe that God has uh, led us to to this particular point of crossing the Jordan River into what we call the promised land, and in my vernacular, it is the land of promises. And, and um, this particular lesson, Sunday school lesson, is talking about from the wilderness to Jordan. And we're going to we're going to we're going to go through this again. I, I just really feel that that we as the church need more clarity than ever before. It is definitely a wilderness out in the world right now. It's more so than it's ever been. It truly is a wilderness out there. And we need to understand uh, what the world represents and what the church really is all about. And that we do. It's not just a matter of crossing into the promised land being a type of heaven. It's a matter of it being the promises of God and living the kind of life that God really wants us to live. And having the power that God wants us to have. And having the understanding. And, and let me, you, you cannot have the power of the Holy Ghost working in you without understanding of that power. And, and I, I really feel that we as a church uh, have been, and I feel like there's several of us that have really crossed over into some understanding. And I, I feel like it will continue to be so. We, we have to cross over to get into that place of, of understanding and knowledge and the working that God wants us to do, the works rather, that God wants us to do uh, in, in as much as the spiritual avenues that the church needs to be walking in at this time. We are living at the end. We, we know that we're living at the end. You, you, if you've had any length of time at all serving God, you would know that we can't have a whole lot of time before us. And it's not a matter. It's not a matter of government. It's not a matter of condition of the United States or the world. It's just a matter of something in the spirit that you feel. Uh, all of this, of course, adds together. We realize that, but there's just something in the spirit that you know. And, and I think that we are right at that at that point. Numbers the fourteenth chapter. We're going to be jumping from verses 26, 27, 29, 31, 32, 33, and 38. And if you've got Numbers 14, uh, I'll probably uh, I'll tell you which verses. We don't have a PowerPoint. We've had a, a glitch in the system. Uh, always a glitch in the system when you've got computers. Numbers 14, 26, And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with thee this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. Verse 29, Your carcasses shall fall in, in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from twenty years old and upward which have murmured against me. Verse 31, but your little ones, which you, ye said should be prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in the wilderness. But your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years, and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. Verse 38. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which were of the men that went to search the land, lived still. You may be seated. The, uh, I think that if you've lived for more than 25 years, 
that you could say that life in general is a arduous journey, pretty much. It's pretty difficult. You know, it's it's like it's like going through a wilderness. That that's life itself. You know, we are we're forced sometimes to cut our way through through thick vegetation. We we cross rivers. We climb mountains, and sometimes we have to fight predators. All of that. So. Life is filled with opportunities, though, as well as pitfalls, because along with that, there's opportunities. And this is where, I think this is where, where you, you, you get the people that really have a desire to serve God versus the people who are just in it for the loaves and the fishes. Because you can look at a situation, you can see how difficult it may be to go this particular path, to, to go into the, the jungles, if you would, to cut your way through some really rough areas. But you also can see that through those rough areas that there's going to be a clearing on the other side and that there's something very precious and wonderful on the other side of what you're going through. Now, on the other side of that, you oftentimes you have people that have the same journey that you have, and all they can see is the vegetation right before them. That's all they can recognize. When I was uh, when I was young, I, I've told this story. That my dad, we had this thorn thicket that he wanted. That's where uh, Jack lives now. It was a thorn thicket, and he could see a place with a house there. He could see that. All I could see was thorn bushes, because I was one with the axe cutting the trees down. That's all I could see. But that was at 14 years old. Uh, the, the thing is that if you, if you can really see something through all the mess that you're going through, if you can see that there will be something better, that you can create, if you would, a, a better situation, if you'll just push through, then that's the difference between someone who's going to be serving God and someone who's going to be a backslider. That is the difference. And I think the wilderness journey here is, is really, uh, it really uh, exemplifies what I'm talking about. God has provided all we need to make our journey a success. Now, the Bible is our map. The Holy Ghost is our inspiration and our empowerment. And sometimes there are well-worn paths that make our progress smooth. And at other times we have, to, we have to stop and cut our way through uncharted jungle and up the sides of steep cliffs. And the perils are, are many and the obstacles are real. But, but life in itself can be an exhilarating journey. It really can. You don't have to make this hard. You don't have to make our trek to the promised land, if you would, and on to heaven very difficult if we would just begin to look at it the way God sees things. We cannot see a lot of times ahead of what we're pushing through. But if we could ever just say, there's something better if I go another foot, and another foot, there's something better if I go another foot, and another foot, something better. You keep going till you get there, and before long, you find yourself in a place that you never thought you would be. Why? Because you journey through the rough places in life. God help us to go through those rough places because they're always going to be there. It's that the rough places are there. It's how we take the rough places. How do I handle it? Don Balt back there preached a message and I, I, a long time ago. He probably never thought that I would remember. Life hands you lemon, make lemonade out of it. Do you remember that? You probably preached it several times, but that, that was, I remember, Dave, you, you preached that at a time that I really needed that message. And, and many times I've thought about that in my, within myself in hard places. You know, what am I going to do with this sour place when I add a little sugar to it and make this thing drinkable? Because a lot of times it's just simply what we add to the situation that makes it all happen. You know, God really made us for challenges. 
Why do you think people go go climb Mount Everest? And and, and poor old, uh, brother Hill, he cannot get it through his mind. You know, when in Palau, I told him I was diving. There was a tiger shark off the, the side, and it, to me that was that was exhilarating. Stupid, but exhilarating. <laughs> You know, I had dead fish, only I've been shooting fish. And, and, you know, I had dead fish, but it still it wasn't a big one. He probably five or six feet. It wasn't very large, but it was still the fact that it was exhilarating. But in his case, he can't see the shark business. He would rather go hunt grizzly bears. Sharks spook him. So we're going to plan on we're going to make a trip. We're going to put him in sharks, and we're going to break that fear once, once and for all. We're going to break it. Sometimes you just have to look on beyond that. You, it, life is getting It's a challenge. People do stupid things as a challenge. So then why is it that we so quickly back down when we have a little bit of a challenge in the church? Why, why do we, we think, well, I come to the church and everything is supposed to be peachy king. Everything's supposed to be right all the time. Do you remember the first time when you got in church that you found out that people were still people even though they were in the church? You remember how to, what a, you couldn't believe, you know, people had the Holy Ghost and they, they couldn't be like normal human beings. They had to have their heads in the clouds all the time. And here you come in expecting that, and you find out that that person sitting next to you acts bad, even though they're not supposed to act bad. Well, regardless, folks, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna face those things. People are going to be people. Yes, we, are, we do have the Holy Ghost. Yes, we do have resurrection power. And yes, Jesus does walk with us. But that does not change the nature of a person completely. We have to make choices every day that I'm going to be better. That's some of the challenges you face in the church. I am going to walk a better walk today. You know, people, again, they climb, climb out ever. Some people swim the English Channel. Others uh, sail around the world in a yacht. And we may not be so adventurous, but everyone needs a challenge. It's, it's what makes life meaningful. The challenge gives us opportunity to engage our talents and our abilities. It gives us the opportunity to triumph over opposition. And God built us for the, for the rigors of challenge. That's what God made us for. We're made for challenges. I want to see a true apostolic church before I die, and I believe we're well on our way to seeing a true apostolic church, not just a group of people that come in and sit down on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and just go through the actions, but a true apostolic church with signs and and wonders that are following. That's what God wants us to be, and that's a challenge to arrive there. It's a challenge. Let's move on. After receiving the law. And, and constructing the tabernacle, Israel left the wilderness of Sinai en route to the Promised Land. And a, a, a journey that should have taken no more than 11 days. Deuteronomy 1 and 2. But it stretched into months of misery filled with complaints and rebellion. This is what they faced. When they finally arrived at the wilderness of Paran, Moses went out, sent out rather spies into the land God had promised them. The excitement generated by their, their reports about the fruitfulness of the land, it, it, it turned to waves of panic. They went from the fruitfulness of the land to panic of the giants in the walled cities in the land. They went from one extreme to the other. They talked about the fortified strongholds. And then he said, one to another, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt in Numbers 14 and 4. Unbelievably, they would rather surrender to Pharaoh's treatment than believe God's promise to give them victory over the giants in the promised land. Their choice of slavery over victory cost them their entry into the promised land and sentenced their children to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. 
Unbelief and rebellion have robbed a lot of people of the blessings and the promises of God. And admittedly, God's promises often are attained only with persistent grappling with giants and squatters. How many people have ever dealt with squatters? I'm not talking about in a literal sense, all right? Squatters, those people that used to come in on these big ranchers out west. And, and, and you know, John Wayne, he, was, he would always, he would always I'll be on the squatter's side. He'd be in a big gunfight with a big cattle baron, you know, and then they'd bring sheep in there. Sheep eat all the grass, made cattle baron. You know. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, what about spiritual squatters? Spiritual squatters are those people, not like you, Keith. We're just, just going to use it. Let's just say Keith here. He's, he, he's, he's a spiritual squatter. And he's sitting over here. I just forgot your name. Colton. It's all right. I'll be 60 tomorrow. It's all right. <laughs> By Colton. Colton comes in to get something from God, and he's got a spiritual squatter sitting right next to him. What do spiritual squatters do? They play with their phone, pick their teeth, clip their toenails, uh, fingernails. You know, they're, they're spiritual squatters. There's somebody or something that robs you of a blessing because you cannot get your your eyes off what they're doing. And you have to battle those. I don't care who you are and how long you've been in church. You find yourself battling a spiritual squatter or, if you would, a giant that is in your life. You know, there's something there that always prevents you from making that last little step. There's a spiritual squatter that sits next to you that stops you from getting what you need from God. Have you ever just known that you heard someone preaching? You heard me preaching, one of the other ministers up here preaching something. You know that you could get there. And you have somebody next to you that just somehow, by what they're doing or how they're acting or that day's look in their eyes, they just suck everything right out of you. That's a spiritual squatter. So you have to battle those. And, and they, these people are, are demons, if you would. They want to keep you from obtaining what rightfully belongs to you. The Lord is faithful, and his promises await those who endure. So, so what we need to do is always remember to make correct choices. I choose today to get something from God. I choose today to make it across the Jordan River. I choose today to be better than I was an hour ago. I choose today to have just a little bit more of the Holy Ghost working in my life. I make that choice. Or you can make a choice. I'm just going to be the same that I've always been and be like that person sitting next to me. Come on, folks, it's a matter of making the right choices. It's a matter of cutting back a little bit more vegetation, traveling a little further. It's a matter of knocking down one more giant in your life and saying, I will not be the same way that I was last week. I will be higher. I will go higher. I'll see more power in my life. I'll see this happening. That's a choice that we need to make. In accordance with God's command, Moses chose an influential man from each of the 12 tribes to scout out the land. In Numbers 13, verse 18, it says, See the land, what it is, and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, what cities be that they dwell in, whether they in tents or in strongholds, and what land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not. Now, you know that God knew all that already. He, he didn't have to have all that, all that answered. But, you know, these questions he already knew, but the people did not know. And he hoped their discoveries of the beauty 
and the plenty of the land would inspire faith in his promises. So he went on to say in Numbers 13.20, he said, Be of good courage. Be of good courage. Now the Hebrew word is translated courage or courageous. Could have made, uh, could have had rather many connotations. It can mean steadfastly minded, fortified, established, or <laughs> one of the meanings of it. I thought, you know, I, I really like the last meaning of courage because it gives me a right to be this way. Obstinate. Obstinate. How many obstinate people we got in here? Very good. Very good. So you're just courageous. You're not really obstinate in the way that you think about it. See, we've got, we got a real good reason now, an excuse to be obstinate. My wife called obstinate hard-headed, bull-headed. I call it knuckle-headed. But anyway, it's courageous, so we, we we're all okay now. All right, so, so it was important, to, you know, to, to, for them to, you know, most, most rather, the, but the most important was to go in the strength. It wasn't a matter of just them being courageous. It was a matter of them going in the strength of God in the strength of Jah or Yahweh, if you would. So God desired Israel's confidence in his power to conquer, whether the opponent be Egypt, Canaan, or any other foe. But only two of the spies approached the mission with courageous or obstinacy, if you would, determination. You would have to be a bit hard-headed to do what these guys did. Now, you think about it. you got ten men who can only see one thing, and you've got two men, they are in the minority, who... They see the good. And a lot of times you find that within churches. You can find one or two people who can see the good, or maybe a 10% that can see the good. But you have the others who can only see battles that have failed. Now, folks, let me, let me tell you this. Unless you have failed at one point in your life in something, you've not really lived. There is always going to be failure. That does not mean God is a failure. In fact, a lot of times what we consider failure, God considers a victory. It's according to what it does to us. God gives you an opportunity through failure to grow. He gives you an opportunity through failure to learn something. That's the one thing that God does and helps us. We may not necessarily see it any other way but failure, but God doesn't always see it that way. Now, so although the others appreciated the good land, their courage shriveled when they saw the massive walled cities inhabited by the, the children of Anak or the children of the giants, the Amalekites, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, and the Canaanites. And instead of imagining themselves moving into the homes they had not built and, and reaping crops they had not planted, they imagined themselves being battered and crushed by hostile forces and their families enslaved. Instead of comparing the enemy's might to God's might, they compared it to their might. You see, regardless of what you do as a church, you cannot, you are not, you're not going to make it if you try to compare their might out there to your might. It doesn't work that way. It's comparing the might of the world to the might of God, who is the creator of the world and who holds everything in his hands. Whatever we do that is right in the will of God, we are pitting not our strength against the world, but God's strength against the world. And we can't fail when God's strength is with us. We cannot fail and we won't fail. Preferring also the known to the unknown, the people decided to return to Egypt. They did not consider that if they turned back, God in his displeasure might not continue to protect and lead them with a pillar of the cloud and the fire. If they went forward into Canaan, they could die. If they went backward into Egypt without food and water, they for sure were going to die. I might die this way, 
for sure I'm going to die the other way. I want you to think about that. You face a real hardship in your relationship with God. And you think that continuing on, you're going to lose something very valuable to you. You might if you go forward. But if you go backward, you're definitely going to lose something very very wonderful for you. That, that, that's how you have to look at all of this. It's for sure. The river may be deep. It may be flooded. And I might drown in the middle of it. But it's for sure if I go backward, I'm going to die. I would prefer taking the chance going forward rather than knowing what's going to happen in the other direction. Ever, you know, there's just my pondering a lot of times. I think that of, uh, of the people that came out of Egypt, that, that generation that came out, they preferred slavery and a variety of food over manna and water coming out of a rock in the wilderness. You realize that? I'm going to give you something. Maybe it's a little bit of revelation on my, my part here. In your relationship with God, you can, if things don't happen in a church, you can get bored in your relationship with God. It's the same way with, with the, the children of Israel coming out of the wilderness. They got bored with manna and quail and water. They wanted fruits. They wanted different kinds of meat. They wanted different things. Now, their children was raised on manna, quail, water out of a rock. They didn't know about the different kinds of food they could have had in slavery in Egypt. But they also didn't know what the lash on the back was about. You see what I'm saying? You can go back into Egypt and get your variety, but you're going to get a lash on your back as well. Anytime you backslide, you go back, and you might have a variety, and it might be a little different for you, and you might even enjoy it for a while. But eventually, the lash is going to be applied to your back. And you might get bored with coming to church on Wednesdays and coming to church on Sunday mornings and Sunday night, and you might think this is the same old thing. I've heard this particular message 15 times, and it may be the same old manna that you've been getting all along, but guess what? You're sustained by this manna. And you're still going forward with this man. And you know, that, that's how we have to understand it. And believe me, there's miracles in the wilderness. I, they got probably got bored, the women did, because they didn't have any clothes to change into. And their shoes stayed the same all the time. I mean, that's what it said. They would have get bored with the same shoes. You imagine some of the ladies today walking in the wilderness with high heels on. Oh, you know, I got to wear purple today. It's purple every day. It's purple, purple, purple shoes. That's all I got. You know, no variety whatsoever. But then there's miracles with that, mighty miracles with that. And the thing is that you're traveling the right. In their case, they were walking circles, but they weren't getting far from the promises. There was a time. That those those that one generation had to die off, and then the next generation who was raised with provision, I, I you know that that still that, that that I've seen people kids that was raised in the church, and I, given uh, some of them have backslidden, uh, some of them you know probably did get bored with the same thing over and over and over again, but they also were raised with seeing mom and dad get miracles. My wife's a great ex- example. We we talked about this a lot of times. She. 
she was her mother was always in church. And she said, I didn't want anything to do with church. I had to go on Sunday mornings. That's why I made a, she made a deal with her mother. She would go on Sunday mornings. She was 16, until she was 16. And she said, I went, and she said, I sat in the back of Sunday school class because I was afraid he was going to ask me a question. She didn't want to answer it because she didn't know the answer. And she said, I went and I endured this. But she said, the one thing that always stayed with me, she said, we, her mother had to babysit for a living. And she said, we didn't have it. And she had uncles that were alcoholics, and they took from her mother. And uh, she said, but my, my mom would pray. And she said, God will provide the money we need. And she said, without, and always there was a check in the mail. Said, you know, not everybody gets a check in the mail, but she said there was always. And that's what she remembered. She said, if my mother could live that kind of life and have to deal with what she had to deal with, but God always provided for her. I mean, literally, she was going through a wilderness, and that always stuck with her. And when the, the time came, when God started dealing with her life, she remembered what God and she never got far from God. And, and that's the one thing we have to remember about our children. Maybe they were raised in church. Maybe they're not in church right now. But they always remember the miracles. They always remember how you endured some of the hardships and how God always came through for you. They'll never forget that. It'll always be there. And raising your children today, it's the same way. Don't, don't, don't let them hear the bad things. There's always bad things when you've got more than two people together. You know, <laughs> yeah. Or two or three are gathered together, there I'll be in their midst also. But also the devil will be in their midst as well. <laughs> okay, I mean, it's, you, you have both, and you still have carnal people. So, you know, the, the thing is, you don't remember the bad. You remember the good. And you point out the good because we, are such, we have such tendencies as to, to overlook the good that's happened. You see someone come down the front and God's done a miracle in their life, done a healing in their life. And, and you've seen faith operating. You've seen how God has been there and has sustained someone. You need to point that out to your children. Point that out. This, this group of children was raised, seeing. They, they didn't know anything but Aaron and Moses. That's all they knew. Moses was their leader. Aaron was their spiritual leader. And that's all they knew. And that's how they were raised. And, yes, you know, if you go on and read through the Scripture, you're going to see where they, they had their difficulties and they had their murmurings themselves. But they still remembered what good they had seen as they went through the wilderness. And in and, uh, and Numbers 13, 3 through 15, it gives a detailed list of the names of the 12 spies. But only two of the names, Joshua and Caleb, are remembered today. You can't tell me the name of any one of the other ten. Some of you Bible scholars out here, can you tell me one name of any of the other ten? But you do remember Joshua and Caleb. Oftentimes being in a minority with a good, the right kind of report, you may seem to be not loved all that much when you're saying the right thing, but when God intervenes on your behalf and you, you speak with faith, you're going to be remembered for what you've done. You will be remembered because you were the one person who said God can. When everybody else said God won't, you're the one who says that. And I was talking Wednesday night, you know, and we won't be able to do this, but we are going to have a healing service where we are going to see people come in early to pray. We're going to have people come down to be prayed for, and I'm not praying for them. 
the people that can look at that person and see that person healed is the one that's going to come down and pray for them. That's how we're going to operate. We're going to operate that person who believes that God can. I don't see that person with a limp. I don't see that person in a wheelchair. I don't see that person with that sickness. I see them worshiping God. And when you pray, that person that is being prayed for needs to begin to worship God for their healing. And you will see, I promise you one thing. I've seen this before. We've, we've not really done it that way here, but we've done it other places. And, and I, I, I have seen that occur in not just the, the, preacher, the preachers doing the praying, but someone out there that's got the faith to see that person in a condition that, that it's beyond what they are now, in a condition of complete healing, in a condition of loving God and praising God because God has done something in their life. But it takes more. It, it's the same way. We, we have to see that. And, and these, you know, this is what Joshua and Caleb, they could not see the bad things. All they could see was the good things. They didn't see Israel being defeated by giants. They could see Israel living in the houses they didn't build. They could see Israel harvesting the crops that they didn't plant. They could see that. When you get something so, so, well, so you're, you get tunnel vision. When you get tunnel vision to the point that I'm looking at him and seeing him being completely victorious over every problem in his life, when I can look at him and see him working a job that he's always wanted to work, I can see him uh, preaching the gospel somewhere. If I can see that, then things will happen. Now, what happens if two or three see him that way? Two or three witnesses. When the church begins to see our house church is working. This church filled. When we begin to see it, when we look around and we see the empty pews and we begin to see people in those pews, that's when people will begin to fill the pews. We have too long depended on too many programs and not enough on God. Too long we've determined that we cannot, yes, we have to plant, we have to plant, we have to go out, we have to invite people in, we have to pray for people. We need, that's all part of it. But I'm saying that if we don't have the vision for it and we only do it out of mechanics, then, then we're not accomplishing anything. I'm not just doing this as, as because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not just doing this because that's what's expected out of me. I'm doing this because I know that God will intervene, that God will do what he said he would do. Too many times we've seen it. We've seen it in small measure. But what if we believed it every time we walked in this place? What if our worship and praise was for what God is going to do in a service tonight before we ever started the first song? What if you walked into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise? Immediately as you walked in, you began to praise God for what he's going to do in the service. But how much more would happen? Give him a good hand clap. Although Israel had seen the wrath of God poured out on Egypt, they feared the wrath of the Canaanites more. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness. The same people who had vowed to fulfill their obligations to the covenant with God now cast it aside. Instead of enjoying the blessings of the covenant, they would suffer its curses. 
God decided to grant their death wish. And the people must have felt a, a pain of fear when the, when the glory of the Lord billowed up out of the tabernacle. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces, faces in anguish. And in full view of the congregation, God said, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them, I will, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and a mightier than they. And this is the kind of man Moses was. What an honor. He, he was going to build a nation for Moses. But instead, Moses tells God, he said, what are the people in Canaan going to think when you kill all your, all your people here? What are they going to think? They're going to, they're going to go out and brag that their might was greater than your might. And that their gods were greater than their gods. They're going to brag on that. What about that? Yeah, I, that, you know, I don't have to get too deep in this, but that, that's been an, one of those scriptures uh, that, that has always astounded me. It's like God got mad and Moses talked him out of it. That's intercession, I guess. But, you know, I, you know I, even this morning I was looking at it, I thought, the thing is, God didn't care whether the Canaanites bragged on their gods or not. He knew they weren't real. So it didn't matter to him one way or the other. It wasn't a matter of, of smacking God's face. But it bothered him that Moses felt that way. And that's why he did it, because obviously he had a great deal of respect and love for Moses, who he spoke to face to face. And so because Moses felt that way, okay, Moses, he began to allay his, his, his judgment. He began to, to put everything down, and, and, and he began to, to back down, not really back down, but in a, in a sense of the word, I guess, back down. And he, uh, he, he didn't destroy him. And even though the people had provoked God ten times, according to Numbers 14.22, because of Moses' intercession, God pardoned the people. Yet he refused to change his mind about the people who had seen the glory and the miracles in Egypt. Everyone from the ages of 20 and up, except Joshua and Caleb, would die under a curse. Your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and your little ones which you shall should, excuse me, you said should be prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. The little ones, in a limited way, shared the punishment by growing up in the wilderness until the 40 years had passed and their parents had died. But God would keep his covenant with them, and they would live to experience a takeover of the promised land and receive their inheritance. There seemed to be no end to Israel's mulish ways. And, and no sooner had Moses pronounced the curse of death upon them, they decided, well, I don't want this, so they're, they're going to, the first hill they came to, they're going to run in, they're going to take it over. And they did. They ran in, and the Amalekites were up there, and they said the Amalekites poured down on them like hornets. And they, they pushed all of Israel all the way uh, to the land of the way of Hormah. And, and Israel seemed to expect then that God to remain true to the terms of his covenant no matter how many times they broke their vows. Maybe it's just me, uh, the way I see things, but even when I was younger and before I was serving God, if I said I was going to do something, I did my best to do it. And if I couldn't do it, I'd let you know I couldn't do it. If I made a vow, I kept my vow. And I see so little of that anymore. And this is a great example. You know, they're, they're, they're breaking their vow with God. And all of a sudden when God says, okay, I'm done with you, then, oh, yeah, no, we're not, don't be done with this. We'll, we'll go do it. 
there comes a time when you, broke your, you, you break your word enough that people will no longer listen to you. They'll no longer. It's better to not, the Bible says, to not make a vow than to make a vow and break it. Not make it at all. So when a person says, yes, he said, I'm going to do this, then if you can't do it, you be sure you let them know why you can't do it. I, I just, I just, I don't know, it's always eat my lunch, I guess. I just cannot stand to see people who say, yes, I'm going to do this, or yes, I'm going to do that, and not do it. I'd rather stand around and look stupid than to tell you I'm going to do something and not do it. And so many times people push you in a corner. Would you do this? Would you do that? And you really don't want to, but you know that if you say you will, you will. And so, you know, folks, that, that's, that's, that's a great example of it. You keep doing it, you keep breaking it. Same way with the wedding vows. Let's really get in here close to where we live. What do you say? You stand up and say and make those vows before God, before the minister, and before each other, then you should keep those vows. You should keep those vows. I'm not going to break the wedding covenant. God help us. That, that was, it's so prevalent today. I mean, it has been for a long time, but it seems to me that, well, they're no longer getting married. They're life partners now. No vows made. I guess it's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. You know, there, there, is, there, there are vows that we make before God, and when those things are done right, it's one man, one woman for life. It's the best preaching you're going to hear today. So it's the vows that we make before God, the vows we should keep them. Numbers 33, Moses recorded chronologically Israel's campsites in the wilderness. And verses 19 through 38 span the 40 years from the first time they arrived at the border of Canaan and turned back into the second time they approached, this time intent upon obtaining their inheritance. This was a younger generation, most of whose backs had not known the lash of the Egyptian taskmasters. And many of them had been born in the wilderness from birth. Moses had been their leader. I said this earlier, Aaron, their, their priest. And the only life they knew was that nomadic life. That's all they knew. And because of, of failure to accept and believe the promises of God, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. One year for each day the spies had reconnoitered the land of promise. In spite of Israel's faithlessness, God continued to guide and protect them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When cloud moved, they pulled up stakes and followed it to the next encampment. Through these gifts of grace, God was attempting to teach the people that if they could trust him to take care of them in the wilderness, they could trust him that to take care and fulfill his promises and give them the land and flowing with milk and honey. If you can trust me here, why can't you trust me there? Regardless of where you might wind up, God is still the same. Regardless of, of what state you may be in. That's the reason Paul said, in whatever state I'm in, therewith I'll be content. God is the same regardless of where you are. Regardless of how you feel. Regardless of what state of mind you're in. God is still God. He still will be there. You know, one would think enough rebellions and punishments had occurred to preclude any further attempts to usurp Moses and Aaron's authority. But the Levite named Korah, number 16 and 1, he didn't like his position. He thought he wasn't lofty enough. So he decides then that he's going to change things. And he got three men, uh, Dathan, Abiram, and on uh, the descendants of Reuben that took part in this rebellion. And they, they assumed, these men assumed their rights to leadership. 
because Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. They thought they should be. Together, these four men gathered support from 250 other men. So they had a support to, uh, to have a, they want to take over the, the church in the wilderness. And they accused Moses and Aaron of elevating themselves above everyone else, saying the entire congregation was considered holy and God dwelt among them. After several confrontations, the entire congregation gathered to see whom the Lord would vindicate, Moses and Aaron or Korah and his followers. Moses told the people, he said, I want you to stand back. He said, uh, something's going to happen. Sure enough, ground opened up. And destroyed uh, Korah and his and his followers, so and the, and the leaders of the rebellion. Fire from the Lord also devoured the 250 men that had offered incense. Thus, to oppose and despise Moses and Aaron was to oppose and despise God. And that's exactly what he was saying here. But it went a little further than this. And this is that even even with all of this, now you can imagine what if you saw that? What if you saw an Ananias and Sapphira that happened in the front of this church, struck dead because of their lives? What if, you, what if you saw that? These people saw this major miracle, but yet they then accused Moses and Aaron of not thinking that these people were holy enough, that they destroyed. We're accusing them. So God sent a plague. He sent a plague on all those people he was accusing. And all these people were, were dying from the plague. And he told Moses, he said, I want you to go get a fire. He said, from the, from the altar. And he said, put it in, in incense. And he said, spread the smoke of incense amongst the people. That would have been the, the incense of repentance is what that was symbolic of. And so he said, spread it before him. And, and because of what he did, and he was obedient to God from the censer of fire from the altar, then the people, uh, people were was confirmed and actually the plague was stayed. Then God, on top of that, confirmed Aaron's priesthood when overnight his staff blossomed and produced almonds. So he, he again, I mean, there's symbolism all through this, the symbolism of the Holy Ghost. We can, we can see this life from death. We can see resurrection. All of this uh, comes from some of these, these types and shadows. But regardless, you can see that these people had to see these miracles over and over and over again. And still, still. They back down. You know, regardless of who we are and how holy we may be at any given time, given the right circumstances and the right people planning the wrong things, they can turn you or make you doubt yourself or think the wrong things. You just listen to someone long enough, and you can begin to doubt. And the devil, he just takes and magnifies that. He, when you get somebody, some gainsayer, if you would, out in the, in the midst of people, he will, a, a demon will be a megaphone in your ear. Whatever that person's saying, he's going to make it louder. And you begin to doubt. You begin to wonder. One thing's for sure. One thing I've never had any problem with. Whatever I can do. Whatever I can be, as long as it's holy and righteous in the, in the sight of God, according to the Word, I'm going to do what I can to win souls. Never, never doubt that for a minute. Whatever I can do. When Paul could say, like he said, I can, I'm all things to all men, so that in all ways I might win some. Then I have an obligation to God to do all I can to see someone come to God. And when I say come to God, I'm saying coming completely to God. You know, not just someone who is, who is, you know, they're there because the singing's good. Or they're there because uh, they like the people. But I want to see people saved. I want to see people baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and living a holy life. 
because that's the only kind of life that really matters. And that's where, that's where you find the true peace and contentment, when you have true salvation, when you have complete salvation. Not just stopping being baptized, not just stopping receiving the Holy Ghost. But continuing on in your growth with God. So many people get in one place and stay there. And even people that have salvation can get in one place and stay there. I want to have this a little bit more every day. I want to have a little bit better understanding every day. A little bit closer to God every day. A little bit more revelation every day. That's, that's what God wants out of us. And that's what I want to be. So, so this is what happened with Korah and people raising a fuss the way they did. Now, during the Israelites' sojourn in the wilderness, it was impossible to find an expanse of arable land large enough to feed so many people. Thus, for 40 years, God continued to send manna until they entered the promised land and ate of the crops that set in the fields. Again, you see people who would have, again, and this is where I brought up a little earlier, people who would have become bored with the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, never allow that to happen in your relationship with God. Uh, Israel often didn't see it the same way that, that Moses could see it, and again, that Joshua could see it, and Aaron. At Kadesh, toward the end of their journey, they complained so bitterly about the lack of water and grain and fruit that Moses and Aaron fell upon their faces before the Lord. And God told Moses to take his rod to speak to the rock, a variation of the command to strike the rock before. And I don't care, there, there again, we don't care who we are, what our position may be. You hear enough complaints over and over and over again, you're going to lose your temper. And that's exactly what he did. Instead of speaking to the rock, type and shadow, Jesus was smote one time. He didn't need to be smoked. You get water from the rock only, only by smiting it once. He didn't need to be smote again. From there on, you speak to him. You ask God for what you need. That was the type of shadow. But regardless, he smoked the rock again. God gave them the water. God gave them the water. But Moses and Aaron lost their place in the promised land. They lost it. I, you know, there through the years, you hear so many people debate and talk about how God could do this to Moses. Well, actually, Moses wound up in a better place. He just didn't wind up going to the place that he was. This man had used his formative years, if you would, to lead these Israelites. All this, he'd spent years and years and years leading them. And here they are again, right back in the place they were when he first started. The same complaints, same gripes. He probably thought, what in the world have I done? What have I accomplished And that's the reason he smoked the rock. All of this time that I've spent, all of these years, I've spent my strength leading these people. And here I am, same place. He lost his place in the promised land. Again, because of this sin, him and and, and Aaron, either one, entered the promised land. Moses reminded the people, The Lord led thee through this great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and, and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of a rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do a good to do thee good at thy latter end. Deuteronomy eight fifteen. Only a handful of people in the land of promise, such as Rahab and her family, welcomed the Israelites. 
The majority of the, of the natives inhabitants thought of the Hebrews as trespassers and encroachers. Israel's first encounter is with the Edomites, whose land sprawled across the direct route of the, of the wilderness in their, in their destination east of the Jordan River. Moses approached the Edomites with great tact, calling them brothers and expressing why they wanted safe passage through the land. But the hatred of the Edom, uh, of Edom for Israel, which had begun in Genesis 27, still burned. And they threatened to attack Israel, or they, rather, they threatened to attack. And Israel began to detour around Edom. They wanted to try to avoid this if they could. And they came, came to Mount Hora on the northwest border between Edom and Canaan where Aaron died. The Canaanite king saw the approach of the Hebrews, and he attacked. God's people prayed for help, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites into their hand, but they did not enter the land from this place west of the Dead Sea. Turning southward, they journeyed all the way to Elath, footsore and discouraged. They launched into the familiar refrain, No food, no water, we hate this light bread. So then the Lord sent fiery serpents who bit the people. But Moses intervened by erecting a brass serpent on a pole, and anyone who looked upon it lived. Now, while encamped on the plains of Moab, God turned the curses of Balaam into blessings for Israel. When the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh saw the lush pasturage of the Transjordan countries of Jazer and Gilead and Bashan, they asked to settle there. They overcame the people and took the land. So they liked the, the, the things on the one side. They settled there. Two and a half tribes settled in that place. But that did not exclude them from crossing the Jordan to help the other tribes to conquer the land. You, know, you can decide to stay on this side of Jordan if you want, but you still have to help us conquer it. You, know, you can just set, but you still have an obligation. We're going to see revival in the church. That's not even a, that's not a, that, that's a moot point. It's going to happen. I, I know that. We're going to see it in a greater way than we've ever seen it before. Again, a moot point. We know, but it's a matter of whether you're going to set and, and, and just watch and say, oh, it's not going to work, it's not going to work, or you're going to help us conquer the land. Because regardless, I've, I've, personally, I've, I've crossed over Jordan. I know where I'm at. And I'm ready to knock down a few walls, knock out a few giants. But I can't do that on my own strength. I have to do that on God's strength. And I want people with me. And that's, that's a choice that you make, whether we're going to do this or not. Now, again, while encamped on the plains, you've seen that they, they settled here. Now, when God told Moses his life was nearly over, Moses asked God to appoint a successor. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take thee Joshua, the son of Nun, a man whom is a spirit. And lay thine hand upon him, and set him before Eliezer the priest, and before all the congregation. And give him a charge in their sight. And thou shalt put some of thine honor upon him, and all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. In Numbers 27. Then after much teaching and admonition, Moses died. Israel's wandering came to an end on the banks of the Jordan River. The Lord spoke to Joshua and gave him the same promises that he had given Moses. He encouraged him to be strong and courageous for Joshua as one of the 12 spies had seen the giants in the fortified cities. He knew what he was going to be facing. There was no doubt in his mind. Absolutely no doubt of what he's going to face. And in that, he still went through because he knew the power of God. Instead, instead of remembering the bad Joshua had that innate ability to remember the good. He could remember what God could do and what God would do. And he also realized that they were a chosen people. 
And he, he's, though he looked at something that might have seemed insurmountable to, to a person within their own strength, he knew that God, through his strength, would conquer this land. Whatever insurmountable thing there is, again, God can take care of that. It's not really insurmountable. Nothing for him. Nothing at all for him. So they came to an end. Now, now Joshua told the people to prepare food, for they would soon pass over the Jordan and go in to possess the land. And on the, on the eve of the river crossing, Joshua instructed the people and the priests. He said, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, this is what Joshua said. Tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Why would it seem God did any more wonderful when he stopped the Jordan River than he did by feeding them in the wilderness, taking care of the, the healing of the fiery serpents? Uh, you know, I can keep going on the various things that was done in the wilderness, the shoes that grew, the clothes never wore out. So Joshua makes a statement that you're going to do, he's going to do wonders tomorrow. Now, maybe they didn't realize what God was going to do at that time. All they knew was that God was going to do wonders according to what Joshua said. But why would Joshua think that that was any more wonderful? Anybody? Why would that be any more wonderful, stopping the Jordan River, than everything that had already gone on? Anybody? Come on. Some of you, some of you Bible geniuses. I won't ask Tony because I know he knows. Go ahead. Why would Joshua tell the people that on the morrow when, he, when they were going to stop the Jordan River and walk across, that that was any more wonderful than what God had already done in the wilderness? Why would that be any greater? Yeah, why would, that, why would he think, tomorrow you're going to see wonders? Well, I've been walking in wonders for 40 years. True, that's a good one. Now, their, their, their mamas and daddies have seen the splitting of the, of the Red Sea. And Joshua had seen that. And Caleb had seen that. None of these had seen anything like that. But still, in the case, so you think that by stopping the Jordan River, that was more wonderful than everything that went on in the wilderness and all of America? See the bluegill on the other side there? Reach out and grab one. Be all right. Okay, go ahead, get down. Exactly right. Yeah, go ahead. Somebody yell what she's saying to me. Because it was something new, different. Okay, I got you. And that, that's all those are right. But, and, but what, what she said is really because finally the, the, the great miracle was they're not going to be wondering anymore. You know, they're going, they're, they're going home, if you would. They're finally arriving home, and that was a great wonder. You've got to stop and think about this generation had heard that all they had done was heard about the, the giant clusters of grapes and the, the land flowing milk and honey. They heard about it. 
They heard about this, but they had not seen this. And, you know, after you hear about something so long and you never see anything about it, you begin to doubt the whole thing. That's just the way we are. Oh, I've heard about this. I've heard about that. I've heard of people getting out of wheelchairs, but now I'm not seeing anybody get out of a wheelchair. I have. I have. I've seen cancer fall off. I've seen various things. I've seen it. I know what God can do. But there's a lot of people out there, and some of the young ones, that maybe have never seen that. And you stop and think, always stop and think this. The kingdom of God is more than McCormick's Creek Church. It's all over. And there's miracles happening all the time. All the time. We just want our part of them. We want our share. I think that's one thing we can complain about. God, come on, give us our share. And he's going to say, well, just do it. Just have enough faith to see it done. Look at it, see it, see it as done, and believe it, and pray for him, and worship God for it. You know, that's, that's what this is all about. And crossing over, well, that's the noise out there. You know, I'm, I am still in here teaching, by the way. Bring them on. That's, that's all right. Look at this. I better put the microphone down and give it to somebody else. That's, is that something you've done? <laughs> well, we're, uh, <clears throat> I guess we're done in Jesus' name. 